You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. You're listening to the Transformative Podcast. I am Dr. Shengpeng, a postdoctoral researcher at the Research Center for the History of Transformations. Today, we are joined by my former colleague and friend, Dr. Leonardo Davodi. Dr. Davodi is an associate member of the Oxford University's History Faculty and researcher with the Global History of Capitalism Project at the University's Center for Global History. He recently completed his PhD in History at St. Anthony's College in Oxford, which focused on the British Empire and the funding of the modern Middle Eastern oil industry. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, Persian Petroleum, Oil, Empire, and the Revolution in Lady Quasha, Iran. Welcome, Dr. Tawodi. Thank you so much, and thanks a lot for having me. Now, first, could you give us a short introduction about the book and tell us more about the background of your research, especially what made you interested in this very special topic? Yeah, absolutely. So my book is about the first discovery of oil in Iran, which was also the first discovery of oil in the Middle East. And I think it's of interest to not just Iranian history, but also broader Middle Eastern history and global history of the last century. Obviously, oil plays a central role in Iranian history. So I was very interested in going back to the origin of it. And what puzzled me the most was that oil was struck in the middle of a very important period in Iranian history called the Constitutional Revolution. And the more I looked into the uh, period, the more I realized that the existing history out there was missing a lot of information and was perhaps slanted in a certain direction. Just to give you an idea, the the only real uh, substantive work on the period I wrote was a company history. And so I realized quite quickly that it had a lot of problems. I'll give you just the two major problems perhaps that I tackle in my book. The first is that it portrayed everyone on the Persian side as being either too ignorant to understand what was happening or too greedy to be able to deal fairly in a business context. And on the other side, it portrayed the British Empire as being reluctant to being involved in this Iranian oil enterprise. So those are the two main axes in which I based my book, and I realized where there was a lot of work that was missing. So there was a major gap in perception on both sides. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and this major gap, I think, is interesting because it sheds a lot of light on a century of, let's say, troublesome relations between Iran and the Western powers. Can you tell us a little more about the relationship between the British Empire and the Persia at the time? Yeah, so in my period, Persia, which is today's Iran, was an independent nation, but it was independent in name only, in that it was caught between Russia to its north and Britain to its southeast. And more importantly than the geographical boundaries, it was politically being suffocated by both empires meddling in its affairs. So the British had what we like to call an informal control over Iranian affairs, it got to a stage where Iran almost had to ask permission before it could do anything political or vaguely autonomously. It was sort of a soft control on Iran throughout the period that we're talking about, sort of mid-19th century up until World War I. 
One of the most fascinating aspects of this book is its colorful characters and the agency between the empire and the local nations. Can you tell us more about the Darcy Concession 1901 and uh, specifically William Knox Darcy as a person? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, perhaps I'll tell you about Darcy and the concession, and then I'll give you a few anecdotes about some characters that I really liked in my research, because the Victorian and Edwardian era gives rise to some very amusing characters to read about and to write about. So Darcy, interestingly, was born in Britain, but then ended up in Australia because his father lost everything as a result of gambling. And in Australia, he was a solicitor in a town called Rockhampton. And one day, three brothers randomly walked into his practice and said that they had stumbled upon what they thought was a gold find. Digging a bit more, Darcy realized that it was one of the biggest gold finds in the history of mankind. It led to a, a company called the Mount Morgan Gold Mining Company, and he made an absolute fortune, became one of the richest men in the world. And with his new fortune, he moved back to Britain, where he reintegrated with a society that he had left behind when he was forced to move to Australia. So he quickly rejoined the British elite, having gone to Westminster, which was one of the elite schools of the time. And because of his newfound money, he was quickly reintegrated. So because of this, he had a privileged position amongst British entrepreneurs. And in 1901, he was shown a project by a gentleman called Antoine Kitabji, who told him that a person, funnily enough, also called Morgan, stumbled upon something in a completely different country, Persia. And what this Morgan stumbled upon was oil. And that's when Darcy decided to invest in a country he had never been to, in a resource that the British weren't using at the time. And so he got involved in Iranian oil. And so on the 28th of May, 1901, after about 110,000 pounds were spent in, let's call them informal payments, the Darcy concession was signed. And this was the founding document of the Iranian oil industry and broader the Middle Eastern oil industry. So arguably, it's one of the most important documents in recent history. Anyways, I'll just mention a few colorful characters that come into my story. The first is a gentleman called Lord Curzon. And Lord Curzon was the Viceroy of India until about 1905. And he's amusing because he had so much self-confidence that he was known for walking into random meetings in Whitehall and just interrupting people and telling them what the truth was because he knew everything about every subject. And he had had this trait since his days at Oxford because people used to write verses about him because he was famously arrogant. My favorite one is one that goes by, my name is George Nathaniel Curzon and I'm a very important person. And apparently uh, that's where the acronym VIP comes from. So he's the origin of that phrase. The other, and I think perhaps the most colorful character that I wrote about, and it's, it was really a pleasure to read his letters and write about them, was somebody called Admiral John Arbuthnot Fisher. And Admiral Fisher was the first sea lord of the admiralty uh, for most of my period. Churchill called him a volcano of knowledge and inspiration. Because when he became First Sea Lord, he was 63, but most of his colleagues said he was by far the youngest man in the Navy because of the uh, amount of energy and verve he put into every project he was involved in. He was famous for his letters, and he's also credited with coining another acronym, actually, one that's OMG, which he once used in a letter in 1917 to Churchill. 
But he also liked to sign off letters in very colorful ways. He once signed off a letter by using the phrase, yours until charcoal sprouts. And I love that. And, and I feel that perhaps we've lost these whole characters with time. And Admiral Fisher was uh, one of the masterminds behind the dreadnought fleet, right? That's right. And he was known as the oil maniac since about 1886, because when he was touring Europe, he realized how important oil would be to the Navy, but also more broadly to the British Empire, because the Navy was the infrastructure that kept the whole system afloat, for lack of better phrasing. And he realized that oil was just superior to coal in so many ways. It was cheaper. It took less space to store. It gave ships more range, made them faster. It also freed up manpower from these awful boiler rooms, and it was more durable. So he realized this early on and, and was pushing the Admiralty to switch, to take this faithful leap and switch from coal to oil. The problem, of course, was that Britain had ample reserves of coal, but no domestic oil. And that's where the Darcy concession comes in, of course, because it's a friendly source of oil within the empire and beyond. For those audience who are not familiar with his history, at the same time, the German Empire was also building a dreadnought fleet, and the British wanted to have faster dreadnought and faster battlecruisers so they can catch up on German ships and even flank them. That's why they tried to switch from coal to oil. There's another country mentioned in your book, the Russian Empire, who was engaged in a very long and complicated geopolitical maneuver with the British Empire in Central Asia. So uh, in what ways the discovery of oil affected the British-Russian grid game and the transformation of term-century international relations? Yes. Yeah, so as you mentioned, the great game, specifically with regards to Persia, was an informal game that was played in the diplomatic space where the countries were clearly competing with each other over influence, but had to do so in a way that would give them enough diplomatic leeway to get out of sticky situations without having to declare a direct conflict. So at first, the Darcy concession, let's say, tickled this conflict because the Russians wanted to build a pipeline from Baku to the Persian Gulf. And what the Darcy concession did is it gave exclusivity over pipelines to the British. So the Russians, first of all, tried to pressure the Persian government in an official capacity. And they did this by promising a loan because the Persian government was always short on money. But this was eventually derailed because Darcy himself stepped in and promised to give the Persian government the same amount of money that the Russians had pledged. And in doing so, the Persian government had enough leverage to reject Russian demands, which included violating the Darcy concession to give them pipeline rights. Now, interestingly, this was a bluff because as I go in in my book, Darcy was actually on the verge of bankruptcy by this time, so he didn't have the money to do this. Now, beyond that, when the Russians got frustrated on that front, they started informal efforts, as I call them, which is a disinformation campaigns and other forms of sabotage. And they did this by paying off journalists, by writing articles that would incite some form of opposition to the oil concession. And there's evidence that they were influencing certain important clergy members to give speeches against the oil operations. Now, in my opinion, the reason why this failed is because at this very early stage, the oil operations were out in the countryside and really didn't affect many people in the country. So there wasn't enough of an impact to incite a mass movement against it. 
The other thing they did is they kept a very close eye on what was going on operationally. So they would have different diplomatic staff members as well as drillers on the ground report back as to exactly what equipment was being used, when and where. So beyond that, so this was the sort of initial effect of the Darcy concession on the Great Game. But when oil was struck in 1908, the concession starts becoming an important element for the British. So the Darcy concession sort of becomes a nexus in this game because now the British need to secure the survival and success of this concession while the Russians want to fight back and A, get pipeline access, but also B, try and disrupt this important economic interest, which gets increasingly important with time. So it's sort of a gradual process because at first, not even the British authorities thought that the Darcy concession was of any importance, but eventually, as oil was found, as the company grew, it became a sort of more and more conflictual point in the Great Game. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between the Shah and his landed noble class? So the Persian monarch was called the Shah, and he, as Curzon said in his book, he was perhaps the most absolute of absolute monarchs in the world, in that he was considered not only a temporal monarch, but a reflection of God on earth. And then there was a sort of a medieval, feudal, court-like environment around him where everybody was fighting for favor in order to gain some form of influence. So in the negotiations for the Darcy concession, for example, the main intermediary, Antoine Kitabji, had to make sure that absolutely everyone who had any access to the Shah had to be paid off. And this even included his servant who brought him the morning pipe and his breakfast. So this is the level of fickleness and and absolutism that was happening in Iran at the time. Okay, thank you. Now I have a, one last question. Are there any interesting stories during your fieldwork and any advice to our PhD student will be going out and doing archival work? You need to befriend archivists because firstly, archivists are mostly very nice people, but they're also human beings. So the nicer you are to them, the more cooperative they will be. And they'll even maybe point you to things that you didn't think about, that you didn't know existed, and so on and so forth. So my key advice is be nice to the archivists. Very good advice. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna. <laughs>